Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Stuart Baines, Assistant Director of Community Outreach at the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. Tonight is our third event with the Grattan Institute. Since its launch in 2008, the Grattan Institute has established a profile as a leader of independent analysis of Australian domestic public policy, aiming to influence both public discussion and senior decision makers. Tonight, the Grattan Institute turns its attention to the issues of national schools policy. The Commonwealth Government's review to achieve educational excellence in Australian schools, more commonly known as the Gonski 2.0 review, has been commissioned to examine evidence and make recommendations on how school funding should be used to improve school performance and student outcomes. The final review will be released in March. Our expert panel tonight will look at how Australia's education performance is declining internationally what needs to be done to lift educational outcomes, and what are the benefits and challenges of Commonwealth interventions. Our speakers tonight, the Honourable Adrian Pakali, Director of the University of New South Wales Gonski Institute for Education, David DiCavallo, CEO of the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, and Lisa Rogers, CEO of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. This panel will be moderated by Peter Goss, School Education Program Director of the Grattan Institute. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you, Stuart. So I'm Peter Goss, and uh, welcome to all of you for joining us on this beautiful Canberra evening um, to hear this fabulous panel, who uh, I will uh, describe what roles they might play shortly. Talk about what the Commonwealth should or should not do to drive improvement in school education. Um, thank you for the library for partnering with us on this event. It's great to be able to bring these ideas to an audience. <clears throat> and also thank you to uh, Grattan's affiliates who allow us to keep doing the work that we do. Genuinely independent research that is rigorous and we trust practical. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the, uh, the Ngunnawal people, I hope I understand, um, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, teachers and teaching have a central role in Indigenous culture, is what I'm told by an elder named Willie Gordon, who works just outside Cooktown and is the traditional storykeeper of the Nugalwara people uh, near Cooktown. So he, I always think of him saying that Indigenous languages, in his, at least of his mob, don't have a word for prince or king, but do have a word for teacher. Now, the uh, way that the event will run, um, thank you for bearing with us while we, uh, while we got mic'd up. Um, I'll provide a brief introduction, we'll have a moderated panel discussion, and then I'll save about 25 minutes for, a, for audience questions. There are always lots of them, so start thinking early, and uh, then I will get you out of here by 7.15. In terms of setting the context, 2018 is a pivotal year for school education and uh, in Australia. While 2017 was dominated by the debate about the dollars, how much and where they should go, we now have the space to switch our focus to students and learning. 
We need to have a new national conversation, we think, about school education, one where the arguments about funding don't suck the political error out of the room. And if we get this discussion right, we'll look back on 2018 as a very positive year, maybe even a new beginning. If we get it wrong, 2018 will be relegated to the long list of missed opportunities. So why am I painting this picture so, uh, so starkly, so black and white as it were? And it's because there are some big forces at play and some genuine conundrums over how to move forward. None are bigger than the Commonwealth's desire and a very legitimate desire, as well as a political reality, to want more bang from the extra bucks that it's putting into, into school education. But meanwhile, the states and territories want to retain control of their own education strategies, and education commentators and others like the Grattan Institute um, have cautioned about the risk of federal government overreach, particularly if it imposes new conditions on how the states spend their money. So our report, which is available on the Grattan website, um, focuses on some of those issues. I won't talk about that, um, but in the interest of helping me meet my key performance metrics, please download early and often. We all, <laughs> we all have those performance metrics. That's one of mine. The goal of that report and of this discussion tonight is to try to nudge the national conversation in that positive direction that I mentioned earlier by adding some colour and nuance to that stark black and white picture of what the Commonwealth should do. Should it stay hands off or should it dive in? Without further ado then, let me talk about my three panel members, uh, painters even, who will help bring this picture to life. Um, immediately on my left to, to your right, we have Adrian Pickley. Um, you've heard about his and read about his background, but as an ex-education minister, he sat in the hot seat at the, at the discussions, um, but is now released from those duties to uh, talk more freely is what I'm hoping about, hoping, but has been a strong champion of needs-based funding and what does it take to support the most disadvantaged amongst our students. And I've seen personally in visits uh, to, to remote schools uh, with Adrian um, that after seeing the song and dance, he would have been the first person to say, that's all very lovely, but what did the students learn? Next, we have Lisa Rogers, who runs one of the federal agencies, the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership. She has worked in different places under different types of settings in New Zealand, in Australia, has seen, can bring a fresh perspective to the role of the federation and how the different parts play together, um, as well as working day to day to say, how do you influence teachers and teaching from a central role? That's a job that requires persistence. I, really, I, I learned just before that Lisa is also a marathon runner. So in terms of non-cognitive skills and capabilities that we might get to, <laughs> persistence is high among them. And then the third of our, on our panel, David DiCavallo, um, has seen both sides of this debate. He currently runs the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, um, which is a very important body in New South Wales. It has a more prominent role there, possibly, than some of its counterparts in other states for uh, aiming to keep the standards high, school and teacher registration, and increasingly the improvement focus. But he's also uniquely well-placed to talk about this topic 
because uh, the Federation white paper process, which happened a few years ago, was led by Prime Minister and Cabinet, and indeed by David when he was at Prime Minister and Cabinet, and uh, I hope all of you will have got your pre-reading. We were joking before that the rest of us just get to speak. David has the, uh, the collateral that he can call on. <laughs> Throughout the debate, please feel free to text or to, to, not to text, to, to, to tweet. Um, it's N at NLAGovAU, at Grattaninst, and hashtag capital ideas. So we, uh, we will make it interactive. Um, thank you for letting me set the scene. We propose that there would be, three, there are three reasons the Commonwealth should get involved, three tests. First, it has to be a good idea. Secondly, it has to be something that governments at any level can do. And thirdly, Commonwealth intervention specifically should, should help, not hurt. We'll work through those roughly in that order. So I'm going to uh, toss over to the panel on the first of them. What are the good ideas? What is needed to lift education outcomes at scale? Adrian. Lots of specific things, but I would say two general things. And, um, the, and the two, those two general things are, uh, and, and this applies to anything, not just in education, but trust and good systems. And again, you know, if you look at the evidence around the world where systems have improved in terms of student outcomes and, and other measures, it's been where um, policymakers uh, and the profession have worked in a, uh, a trusting relationship, uh, a non-combative, cooperative and trusting relationship. And I think that's really important. And I used to say it in my previous role that um, we could, and government departments and systems could put out all kinds of press releases and glossy brochures. But if the profession don't trust you, if the people doing the doing in the classroom don't trust you and don't think what you're doing is right, then nothing is going to change. I could change everything I liked and wouldn't change a thing, single thing that would happen in the classroom. You need to bring the profession with you. Uh, so I think that trust aspect is, is really important. So anything the Commonwealth might do, it's got to be, you know, we would hope it's going to be backed by the profession. I've got great confidence that what the Gonski report comes out with will indeed be the kinds of things the profession's been talking about for quite some time. Now, how the Commonwealth respond to that is, is then a question for them. But the second thing is around, around good systems and good systems of implementation. And again, systems that, that, um, that people trust so, you know, the role of AITSL, for example, around teacher standards and principal standards. If there are good systems and effective systems and the people who are subject to some of these standards requirements have confidence that it's actually building their capacity and building their professionalism, then it will be effective in actually improving, improving outcomes. Uh, you know, I saw it again in my previous role. It's about making sure that we've got good systems, good systems of... Uh, accountability, getting that right balance bet between, you know, that, that right a balance of accountabilities. Uh, and again, where you get that right, then people trust you. Uh, and that's when you see um, systemic improvements uh, across, uh, across entire education systems. So I would think it's those two things. There are specific things indeed that I, that I would hope are going to be part of the recommendations out of the Gonski report. Uh, but you know, maybe we'll get into those a little bit later. Indeed. Thank you. Lisa? I couldn't agree more. So um, 
when I first uh, came to Australia, people said to me that um, federation politics will drive me completely up the wall. Um, and it has its moments, and you do have to be persistent. But um, the, the benefits of it, actually, are the fact that it isn't particularly agile. And so what that means is you, you just actually have to work really, really hard in terms of negotiation, negotiation, negotiation. And so in that builds trust and also credibility. Um, and there's something about that. I'm not the kind of person normally that would say um, we don't need agility. We do. But there are some things that this country has done so well, um, we need to continue to do that to realise the benefits. And one of those things has been to build the trust with the profession. So um, again, if you look at Aitzel, we've got um, 30,000 teachers looking at the illustrations of practice every single month. Uh, 1.6 million teachers have used our website in the last 16 months. So teachers are, continue, are accessing um, Commonwealth-supported resources um, that have been signed off at Education Council in order to help them in their practice. Uh, and, and I just think that's phenomenal. So we've, we've got to retain that. Regardless of the politics, though, to be perfectly honest, the politics doesn't matter a jot. The thing that really makes a difference are the things that teachers are doing in classrooms. So it's those moment-by-moment -moment decisions and actions that actually will change, change student achievement. Um, and, and I think we need to get you know, very, very real about that. Uh, it needs to go from the cabinet right to the teacher's desk um, and what teachers do matters. In that, though, we have to look at the profession. So um, I'm a firm believer that we've got to get the right people in the profession. We need great teachers in the profession. They need to be inducted well. And we need to be able to support those teachers um, to command and practice in an excellent way. Uh, and again, the Commonwealth has been able to support a kind of shared network of practice. and. They've been able to, you know, through the ASL resources, identify great practice, whether it be in the NT or the ACT, um, and, and deliver that and share that across the nation. So I think in terms of policy reform, we, we have to make sure we've got the right teachers in the classroom, support them through career pathways, and actually enable them to access excellent resources. I... David. Thanks, Peter. Um, thanks, Adrian. I should point out that uh, Adrian appointed me as the CEO <laughs> of the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, so um, I'm also a little bit freer to speak uh, than I would have been a little while ago. Uh, and of course, I've had lots of interactions with Lisa, and we've been comparing notes about the fact that uh, a national body is being run by a person who came from uh, New Zealand, and then before that, England, and the experience with federated uh, governance is... is um, is, uh, well, we're doing our best, aren't we, to try and uh, you know, bring you up to speed on how things happen here. But um, look, one of the questions that Peter asked, the, the, this, the way he initially framed the question was, what needs to be done to lift educational outcomes at scale? There's an assumption built into that, that we know what educational outcomes we should be lifting. And when you look at our public debate around this, um, we zero in on NAPLAN and we zero in on PISA. And so we focus on a very narrow range of educational outcomes that are informing the debate. Now, they're very important outcomes. Literacy and numeracy are basic and fundamental. Um, but uh, the whole of the education debate seems to be around they are the outcomes that we need to lift. 
When you look at PISA, it's also literacy and numeracy, but they have a wider, a more interesting approach around how they assess literacy and numeracy. And it's going into different things like critical thinking skills and problem solving. And our uh, NAPLAN results across the country are genuinely not changing. They're pretty much flatlining on the whole. There's been some recent upticks um, in certain areas. But our, our PISA results are diving. And that's a really interesting question because arguably PISA is the, is the assessment that's testing what we are referring to as the 21st century skills around critical thinking and problem solving that we need. So my sort of first uh, sort of challenge to the question is, uh, are the assumptions underpinning the question the right ones? Are we actually uh, looking at the right educational outcomes? I would argue that um, uh, in addition to literacy and numeracy or mathematics and English, we should be looking at ways, well, how do we get a read on how we're going in terms of science and how we're going in terms of history? Um, uh, mostly, uh, we tend to think about educational outcomes in a fairly utilitarian fashion, um, that we need to give kids the skills that they need. And so we think about, well, what do you need in order to get to the next level of uh, level of understanding? But there are also some things, particularly in the space of history and social studies, et cetera, which we as a community should be saying, these are the things we want our kids to know and understand. So uh, part one of my response is to say, let's broaden the understanding of what are the educational outcomes that we think we should be uh, assess assessing and measuring. Um, but to come more pointedly to your question, Peter, what can be done at the, to lift education outcomes at scale? Uh, I would go back to both uh, Adrian and Lisa and pick up a theme there. I think um, professional learning is crucial. We have a lot of uh, teachers coming to the system, a lot of them have been there for a long time, and we have new teachers coming through all the time. Uh, but once they graduate, Often their access to high quality professional learning after that, once they're in the school, is not as great as it should be. And we don't have a culture of persistent, ongoing, deep and sustainable professional learning and development um, across the country. It's, a, it's quite patchy. Uh, but I would suggest that the, we should be looking at models of really effective professional learning um, I think we should be looking at models that have uh, uh, master teachers or high, highly accomplished or lead teachers um, delivering uh, high quality evidence-based uh, training in evidence-based pedagogy uh, in the school, not taking the teachers out of the school for an afternoon to, a, to another venue, but you know, for, for half a day, but actually having sustained professional leaders working with small groups of teachers over long periods of time. And I think if we can uh, systematise that approach, to use Adrian's term, uh, that is something that I think will make a difference. Can, can I just add Please. one? Can I just add one thing? Uh, it's what happens outside the school gate. You know, we, we always talk about what happens inside the school, but you know, having seen the data over the last six years about PISA performance and NAPLAN, it's the performance, whether it's going up or down, it's pretty consistent across sectors and between states, which to me says there's something going on outside the school gate. Um, whether it's a cultural thing, you know, I was talking earlier to somebody about whether 25 years of uninterrupted economic growth has, has made Australia as a, culturally a bit complacent. You know, you can just go to school mm. and you can, you know, you're more likely to get a job. It's not that, it's not that pull factor from, you know, I need to do well at school because I want to get a good job. Um, you know, some of that was talking to the chief scientist about universities not requiring prerequisites. Um, you know, quite a big percentage of students get into uh, 
a university, get accepted into a university before they've even done their exams at the end of year 12, at least in New South Wales. You know, some of these other pull factors um, are, are having an influence, but you know, we do. Have, I think we have an, a cultural issue in Australia, mm. uh, maybe on the basis of how lucky we are as a country, because again, I think, and I don't have the data to hand, but you know, the performance of students from a non-English speaking background mm. uh, outperform, I think, mm. students mm. With a, from an English speaking background. Mm. Now, I, I, don't, I don't have the evidence in front of me to say that's exactly what it is, but it seems to be a pointer of, you know, perhaps some broader cultural things. And one of the things that we do know, there's very strong evidence behind, is that having high expectations that your students can learn is vital. Um, it's actually a bit untestable. Can every student learn? That's an untestable thing. But we do know that when teachers have high expectations of their students, their students tend to learn more than they would do otherwise. So it's kind of a Pascal's wager. You might as well uh, believe it because it works. It's also encouraging. Um, to your point, Adrian, I think that in some schools, um, we kind of seem to have lost what those high expectations look like. Um, I was talking to a colleague from Western Australia who's in the audience here who was saying that um, even students who did relatively well in NAPLAN had got to band eight, which is, uh, for those that aren't as familiar with NAPLAN, is a pretty solid standard that should be setting you up to complete um, year 12. In more disadvantaged schools, it wasn't enough. Those students, even though they had the foundations only a few of them were doing well enough in year 12 to go on to university, whereas the kids who were getting the same level in NAPLAN in a school where the expectations were higher, nearly all of them were. So there are some things going on here. And this is partly why it's so hard to change at scale. And why the reason I started here is there aren't easy answers. We know many of the things that need to be done. I think the point about systems is very much right there. Um, Lisa? Can I just make a point about that? So when you look at the PISA data, the thing um, that you often hear from the PISA data are um, the key variable that makes the biggest difference um, are effective teaching um, and teachers teaching the whole curriculum. So one of the problems that we find in the PISA data is often um, students have, haven't been exposed to particular items and basically they just haven't been taught the concepts to be able to do well on the PISA test. Um, and that's one of the major variables that determines uh, achievement on a PISA test. The other major variable, um, which has the same size of impact, um, is attendance. So it basically says um, students have to turn up every single day, um, stay in education for as long as they possibly can, and be on time every day. Um, and those, that attendance variable is as impactful in terms of achievement as the, um, the teaching uh, variable, but we don't often talk about it. Mm. And the achievement, uh, the uh, um, attendance variable is all about expectations, um, just keeping going at school <coughs> and even being there. And so that's, you know, it's quite an important point that people miss. And, and the thing around the, um, you know, particular, um, uh, you know, achievement at a particular score point in NetPlan, Again, one of the things that I think we're missing in the system is this notion of a compound disadvantage. So uh, we get lots of kids that come in, they start school uh, in different places in terms of their achievement trajectory, and you know, and the kids that are um, successful continue to um, 
experience success, but actually the kids that are struggling, um, by the time they get to about year four, you start to see them slip off the achievement curve in terms of um, curriculum. And all that's happening there is compound disadvantage. So we basically see them um, kind of getting poorer in terms of what they know, um, and at which point they start to disengage. And so I think the system also needs to think and understand students' trajectories longitudinally rather than cross-sectionally. But the data don't allow us to understand students' trajectory longitudinally because it's all cut cross-sectionally. And Lisa should know this because in New Zealand she, they did put that data together and I understand that you were very involved in that. Um, so very, very much agree. Um, so through that introduction, you will have heard themes about some things that can be done that need to be done at scale, other things that are very, very <coughs> local. What does it take to drive attendance in a remote community? So that brings us to the next part, the benefits, the challenges, and the, the risks of the Commonwealth getting involved. Some of the things that need to happen are not obviously Commonwealth-led, but they have an interest in making sure that the money, extra money going into schooling makes a difference. So David, I'm gonna start with you this time. Thinking back to that Federation white paper process, what did you learn about the benefits, challenges and risks and how to, how to mitigate them? Sure, um, I guess I, it's not surprising that when I was uh, first asked to do this job and I uh, was speaking to my friends and colleagues in the Commonwealth Public Service and um, I said, oh, I've got this uh, job of uh, running the White Paper Task Force on Reform with the Federation. Nine times out of 10, the, um, the not altogether joking response was, well, that's easy, just abolish the states. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of you in the audience who still harbour that sort of totalitarian mentality. Because um, uh, that's the sort of town Canberra is. We sort of live in our sort of... Uh, um, uh, uh, our uh, nationalist bubble as opposed to a federalist uh, arrangement. But um, I think um, what I learned uh, through the process itself um, was we were able to get out six uh, discussion papers uh, which were negotiated over very many months um, by senior people across uh, all nine jurisdictions with every word by in those papers agreed. And I've provided to you um, some of the, the flavour of that in the handout. Uh, and you'll see um, uh, almost uh, in every paragraph, if not in every sentence, uh, there's a kind of a, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of uh, sort of flavour that there is um, a sense in which we had to strike a balance uh, between uh, things like the, the very important principle of subsidiarity on the one hand, which is that in terms of governance, so that functions should be carried out by that level of society, which is uh, most capable of doing it um, uh, at the lowest level, most capable, um, uh, rather than simply start with everything at the top and then delegate down according to the will of the, of the body at the top. Um, functions should be, uh, should be uh, sort of delegated up by the bodies that are, feel at the lower levels of, of, of organisation feel that they need support uh, or someone else needs to do them. But um, negotiation developed a great deal of trust across the board. So, um, uh, and uh, obviously uh, I, I left the, the role in mid-2015 just as uh, I felt it was in a good shape. Um, some colleagues uh, in one of the jurisdictions, unfortunately, decided to leak the draft green paper, so the trust went out the window at that point in time. Uh, but nevertheless, it was up, up till that point in time a, a really productive process. Um, 
Uh, and around that, there was an increasing recognition of the importance of, of the jurisdictions, the importance of the principle of subsidiarity and of, uh, of trust, uh, and the dangers of Commonwealth overreach, the dangers of tying conditions uh, to funding, um, uh, because inevitably that has um, uh, a backlash. Uh, even if the idea is a good one, if the Commonwealth comes out for political reasons to say we're going to make the states do this, we're going to make the funding condition on do this, to do this, they completely underestimate the ability of state bureaucracies and governments to appear to be meeting the conditions <laughs> um, uh, while going along uh, their merry way. Um, and it just doesn't engender sort of uh, trust and goodwill. Um, so uh, I, I would say that uh, there is a, a risk of um, of, uh, of Commonwealth overreach, here, not just on the, on the on the politician side, but also on the bureaucratic side. Um, I think it's a great pity that the spirit of the Intergovernmental Agreement on Federal Financial Relations, which was introduced in 2008, was not followed through. It was honoured much more in the breach than the observance. The idea was that we would get rid of over 140 or thereabouts, I don't know the exact numbers, uh, national partnership agreements and reduce them to half a dozen um, you know, special purpose uh, um, agreements or national agreements. Uh, and only have a very, very small number of you know, targeted funding agreements for, um, uh, for, for special initiatives. But you know, within a couple of years, those implementation plans, those national partnership agreements, it's like you know, you know, they say watching grass grow is, uh, is boring. Well, it wasn't because the, the IGA FFR tried to come and cut down that forest of, of NPPs and then they sprung up again uh, within a couple of years. Um, and, and that was a habit of mind to a large extent that, um, uh, that, um, that exists uh, in Canberra about we can't trust the states, we've got to write down in detail in these implementation plans before we hand the money over. And I think there's a real unlearning uh, here that needs to, needs to be undertaken. Um, uh, so I, I would urge that um, the Commonwealth uh, exercise restraint um, that is not to say, of course, that the Commonwealth hasn't got a very important role, it does. And I think um, its most important role is to bring the states together to try and get a shared vision uh, and a shared uh, set of um, flexible targets, a shared aspiration um, that everybody can sign up to. But it's got to be flexible enough to allow state differences. Uh, and also there's a very important role for the Commonwealth in data collection and dissemination. Um, uh, and getting national nationally consistent data. And that way I think there is real strength in the publication of performance data. Um, so that uh, the publication of, of, of performance data by how states are going allows the people of those jurisdictions, the people of those polities to hold those parliaments accountable. So, so much of the accountability talk in federal financial relations is the Commonwealth holding the state's account for how they use our money. It's all the people's money. Uh, so there's got to be a change of language, a change of mindset that says, how does the Commonwealth help the people hold state parliaments accountable? So thank you for uh, foreshadowing my next report, which is going to be uh, how do we use the data that we have available, limited as it is, mm. um, to compare how well states are doing once you control for some of the other factors, mm. because I don't think we do enough of that. Um, 
they, that fine balance, I think, the, that you talk about of having a broader vision, being able to bring things together, mm. um, but not being so prescriptive that, uh, that it, that it ticks a, um, triggers a, a knee-jerk response. Um, Lisa, that seems to be something that you live with on a day-to-day -day basis. So yes. keen to, to learn how you use that role um, and what you found works and then where you, you have to be very cautious mm. about saying that the shared view um, doesn't automatically, that it flows immediately, yes. easily to where it might be most valuable. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's, um, there's a very privileged position in terms of having um, uh, federation politics and that, that, and that is that you get bipartisan agreement on some things. So I've never worked in a system before, actually, where there tends to be bipartisan agreement on a lot of aspects of teaching and school leadership. So, um, and I think in part, um, and you'll be able to advise me, David, I, th I think it's because, you know, in previous systems I've worked in the UK and um, in New Zealand, there is only one government. And if the government happens to say something, then everybody just rallies against it. Whereas um, things are so, you know, and that's just the way it is, you know, um, regardless of whether it's a good idea. Whereas things here are so um, uh, complex um, that actually a lot of the work gets done and a lot of the work uh, is a shared value and vision across multiple governments. Now, that takes a lot of work to do, and some of the downside is it takes a long time, mm. um, and you need to be really persistent, and there are moments where, you know, you, you kind of struggle to get up in the morning sometimes. You think, really, can, can we just get on with this? But actually, <coughs> um, the endurance of that and the bipartisan support for many things in terms of teaching and learning is an incredible asset. Uh, in terms of the politics. And and we can't lose that. I, I, I think it's so important. Um, so so just to let me tease that out, there is the counterfactual, um, let's say in the UK, where if you have a Conservative government that says we are going to go down to focusing on phonics back to basics, they, in a sense, they can shift that much quicker right. and then trigger the response against that as well as, yeah. uh, you know, that has value. Mm. But... Uh, but any yeah. big move like that, and you're saying that this is protective. Very much so. Against it that. is. That's a, yeah. Not how I thought about it before, it but <laughs> yeah. And, and when you know when Apesal walks out of Education Council and it has its instruction, it's instructed across all of those governments, um, and and so that's what we do. The other thing um, that struck me was the voice of the profession in the politics, and so. Again, uh, be because of the way things run, actually you are able to amplify the voice of the profession and the profession's voice is able to be enduring because somebody somewhere, re regardless of the politics, will be holding on to that voice. Um, and that voice will be right in the middle of Education Council and that's critically important. The, the other thing is um, I see it benefits the, the less well-off states. Um, you know, and so the NTs of the world actually, there's a there's a benefit um, for them uh, in in terms of uh, the Commonwealth, but also um, a less seen benefit is the fact that we're able to understand what great practice looks like across the nation, um, share it and exemplify it, and so 
it's not just the big states uh, that can hold the flag in terms of we've got, we've got great standards, we've got great practice. Actually, we can see it um, nationally in terms of where we stand from the Commonwealth's perspective, and that's critically important. Again, we've got the opportunity to share that practice across the, across the nation um, and, and share professional collaboration across the nation. Um, and so you get this sense of kind of an honest broker. I agree with David. I, I really do think that there's a role in terms of exemplifying the standard, whatever that may, might be, or exemplifying the principle or agreeing on the principle, and then actually letting the jurisdictions get on and implement it or think about what it looks like in, in their um, particular state or territory, because there is absolutely no way the Commonwealth can possibly have a view from you know the cabinet to the kitchen table in terms of particular states and what, what it looks like uh, at a local level. So there is a reach, there is a risk of overreach, um, but there are also incredible benefits. But with that, presumably you also do have to close the loop if you set an overarching approach and then each state and territory chooses to do it slightly differently. We're not going to learn from each other if that work then just happens in isolation and, and doesn't get brought back together. So That's, one yeah. way to make sure it gets brought back together is to put some conditions on it. Um, there are other ways potentially to say how do we learn from that and that <coughs> is that where some of the fine nuances so so it's coming together going apart coming together again a little bit i think you're absolutely right i mean a good example would be say you know it's your phonics example so if you take the um the professional standards for example um so i don't necessarily believe that um uh professional practice looks particularly different across states and territories. Okay. I think that you can have eight different ways of teaching handwriting. Um, I think you can have 50 different ways of teaching handwriting. And quite frankly, we shouldn't get involved in that. You know, that's the business of the classroom teacher. But actually, in terms of setting what the professional standard looks like, whether that be for teachers, for principals, for initial teacher education, I think we can agree as a nation, as a country, as to what that looks like. And then, how that is enact, enacted at a local level, really, um, uh, should be left uh, at, at the local level. So there's a, that's a very positive, nuanced and uh, optimistic view, I think, uh, and a realistic one um, uh, from uh, comparing across different systems. Adrian, you're the one who sat at the top table, been involved in some of these discussions and then had to uh, go back to New South Wales and uh, find a way to implement it. I'm interested in hearing a bit about that perspective. And also, when you have something that, that seems like a pretty good idea, what makes, it, what makes the difference between that good idea paying off or, or going haywire? Some of the um, most, my most memorable moments as, as a minister were in those ministerial council meetings. Um, uh, usually dealing with federal colleagues and other other state colleagues, um, um, it, it was always it was always interesting. But um, there's always this tension about centralised, decentralised, and um, you know where we've kind of got to in Australia. And it's an on it's a it's a work in progress. Some things are best done nationally, teaching standards, uh, national curriculum. Uh, I mean, I think an additional one is entry standards into university. Who we take in. Uh, there are other things we can do at a national level, but that we should that there are there is value in in competitive federalism. There is value in saying, you know, each state should 
have the the ability to do things slightly differently so that we do learn from each other and you know, we we in new south wales have copied um successes from from other states and then of course you know at a school level we we allow schools to do to do different things um so i think that kind of you know where the commonwealth gets in trouble when they seek to intervene too too closely into the way that schools operate because the Commonwealth doesn't operate any any schools, doesn't employ any staff, when they start getting into that operational thing uh, is where they start getting into trouble. So an example would be in, in my in, in my state was the um, independent public schools. Yep. Now, you know, that was a Commonwealth policy and and and, and again, you know, Commonwealth Gibbons was in Adrian, just a second for those they they wouldn't be so sure. I'm sure most of you would know. Um, but that would be government schools, but saying you get much more freedom may eh, to to run um, with autonomy or as in New South Wales as you would call it, authority. Yeah. So they stay within the government <clears throat> system but get treated as though they were not in yeah. some respects. Yeah. And and some of the things that the Commonwealth seeks to to to, you know, impose or make a condition for states not necessarily bad ideas, in, certainly in the time I was, I was minister, under, under four federal ministers, they, they just weren't particularly well um, managed. Because you take an example like that, yep. not even Western Australia signed up to it, and they have independent public schools. So, <laughs> okay. you know, they, they just weren't particularly well managed. And I've got to say, you know, all the talk about a year one phonics <clears throat> check testing, that's just not being particularly well managed. It's being driven by... I'm not saying it's a good or a bad idea. I just don't think they're on the right path to getting all the states to agree, right. if that's what they want, because I just don't think it's been particularly well managed. No, I, I just absolutely agree with that, Adrian. You know, New South Wales has already a, a sort of a phonics check of, yeah. of a kind already. So rather than sort of coming in and saying, we're going to make the states do a year one phonics check, I'm not saying that that's what they are saying, but they might be tempted to say that. They say, let's have a look at what the states are already doing good, well in this space and try and spread that good practice, encourage that good practice nationally. And you used the example before of the Australian Professional Standards of Teaching. What the Commonwealth did there is they basically took, you know, I had nothing to do with it, but I can say that with the New South Wales Professional Standards for Teaching that were basically the prototype for the Australian standards. And so you can take good practice that is emerging from the states and elevate it to a national level, and if you do it sensibly, you will get the buy-in. Yeah. And how much is this driven, do you think, by, um, in a sense, that political need to say, if we put in a phonics check running with that example, then we will be able to ensure that every child learns to read properly and that way we'll know we're getting the value that we want? Or is it what else, or, or is it some other reason? Why does that play out more than more than once? You know, I, you know, I, I go back to the thing I said right at the very beginning. It's it's trust. You know, I don't think that's a reform driven by the profession, I'm, and I could be wrong here. But um, you know, I, I haven't come across many teachers who necessarily think that that's a great idea to have a year one a year one test, um, a, a phonics test beyond what we already do with. Mm you know, five weekly um, assessments of phonics and phonemic awareness as part of the uh, as part of the progressions that we use, certainly in New South Wales. So, you know, I think you're going to have trouble getting things like that up when it's not supported by the profession. And what I used to do as minister, and Jeff Newcomb's here from the AIS, before we had ministerial council meetings, before we met with Aitzel and Akara and all the other uh, um, Commonwealth entities 
and the other states, I get together with the stakeholders in New South Wales and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about the history? Are you okay with the history curriculum, ticking it off? Are you, ha are you happy with whatever AITSA was putting up? And I would, I would make sure that it was actually supported by the profession. And um, it was always the most empowering thing you could do is to know you had the profession behind you because no one can argue yeah. against it then. Mm, yeah. And I just don't know that sometimes, you know, I didn't manage things always particularly well. I just think sometimes the Commonwealth manages some of these things yeah. poorly. So, you know, talking about the risks of Commonwealth intervention, it's sometimes not that they're bad ideas, but I don't know they're yeah. particularly well, um, yeah. uh, you know, well articulated or that they've, you know, got the support of the profession. And yeah. can I say, I think one of the worst things that a minister's ever done is said that 10% of teachers should be sacked because if you want to ruin trust right from the get-go, you could you could you could uh, you know you could cure you could cure a major disease, and people won't remember you for that. You, they will have completely ruined the trust. Um, so you know, um, managing issues and managing from the Commonwealth because everybody's sceptical. All the states are sceptical about Commonwealth intervention. Uh, it better be a good idea managed very well. And I do think the phonics check is a great example because when you actually look at the proposal, it's not about a year one test. It is about a phonics check uh, diagnostic. And yet the way it's been managed in the public domain has elicited this response um, from the profession and the states, which didn't have to be the case. I'm going to uh, um, wrap up this piece of it and then uh, throw to audience questions very shortly. Um, a brief response. Uh, they, when I talk to some of the education uh, um, bureaucrats um, and to some of the political staff at the state level um, about what might happen this year and the extra conditions that might come with the, the funding agreements that will need to happen by the end of this year, I've detected anger. That doesn't necessarily surprise me. Funding is always a, a, a complex thing that elicits strong responses. But I've also detected a degree of fear that choices that get made could really send things off badly. So I'm just interested in a response about is there fear as to what might happen through this process? Even let's, let's assume with good intentions, um, but that it may go wrong. Who wants to jump I'll, in? I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first. So the, the debate about funding, additional funding, you know, is at the margins. I mean, I'll take a state like New South Wales. We spend $13 billion <coughs> a year in, in, in school funding. And every year, well, let's say, you know, even the, even the Gonski increases are, are marginal compared to the $13 billion that we already spend. And I hope that the Commonwealth Review focuses on how you can get better value for the $13 billion rather than all our attention being focused on the extra $200 million a year that's going to be spent, which is where all the debate ends up being. What are you going to spend the extra money on? Which is about 3% What about the nationally? $13 billion? You know, yep. you get 5% more effectiveness out of your teaching profession for which, you, for which taxpayers spend, you know, $10 billion in the public system, add another couple of billion for the non-government. You get a 5% improvement there. That, that swamps whatever additionality we might get in a particular year. So, you know, if we're looking at measures like that, you know, how do you give teachers more time to do mm, some of yeah. the, you know, in-school professional development that we know is the most effective thing that schools can do? How do we know that, you know, we can do more of that, you know, the team teaching and all of those mm. things that, that school, the teachers want to do and have the time to do? Uh, I hope that the recommendations go towards those kinds of things, you know, the sharpening the saw 
uh, mm. things that, that, that teachers want to do rather than us become, you know, entranced by this extra little slither of cash and what are the extra things we're going to do with it and ignore the, you know, if it's $12 billion in New South Wales and we're a third of the country, it's $36 billion. How do we get more effectiveness out of that $36 billion? I'm totally with you. So one of the things that, you know, I, I'm continually frustrated by is the conversation about dollars, right? Actually, I want a conversation about the return on that investment. So actually, where are you going to put your dollar in order, in order to maximise that return? You know, whatever the return is in terms of our measure. But we need to get, we need to get much smarter about how we are spending our money. Um, I'm probably going to say something that is slightly controversial, but um, this country is incredibly wealthy. Um, incredibly wealthy. And there is so much expertise in this country. And, and I don't think um, this country has experienced the shock it needs in order to think very, very seriously about the investment it's making and actually what we're getting from that investment. And so, um, and you see countries, you know, countries that saw, countries that are flying have had some form of shock and they've had to think very deeply about their investment. And so things like, you know, Adrian, you were saying, um, around collaboration. We need to be able to buy teachers' time in order to collaborate. The, the most powerful form of professional learning is moderation. And so, you know, I'm struggling to count... Moderation being... Oh, so moderation. So basically, teachers talking together on the basis of the data that they have in terms of named students in regard to the curriculum and how they might affect change. Now, I'm struggling to count the number of dollars that are spent in PL. I got to 500 million, um, and, you know, and it's still a wobbly figure. So in Australia, if we're spending $500 million on professional learning a year, why on earth is it not going into moderation? Because that's the kind of stuff, actually, that will enable teachers to understand um, classroom practice better. They'll be able to share practice. They'll be able to understand the curriculum better. And actually, they need the data to be able to moderate on. So the thing around year one phonics, you know, it's a check. What frustrates me is the fact we have thousands and thousands of assessment items in this country, and there is no reason why we can't pull those assessment items so teachers can access them nationally. Similarly with curriculum objects. You know, we've got curriculum resources. We've got no sense, actually, of how effective they are, what their relative weighting is. Again, why can't all teachers access all curriculum resources and actually know how effective they are? You know, it is inexcusable, and this is something that nationally we can do. And that is a scale game. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up the panel discussion there and throw over to audience questions to make sure they, they, we get enough. So um, if I can see a few hands, um, and I'm going to keep looking um, and go to the lady in the white in the middle, um, pass it down, and then I'll go to the gentleman over there. The reason that I'm going with a lady first um, is because the evidence shows that um, when a woman asks the first question, then the uh, gender balance of questions is roughly equal. Um, when a man asks the first questions, it's 90% men. So we <laughs> well are listening done. to the evidence, madam. I, I thought you were going to make a comment about the quality of the question, and I thought the question might <laughs> actually be on. A, taken as a given. <laughs> um, you talk about trust, and perhaps I'm the only teacher in this room that may not be feeling the trust. It's been 20 years, two decades. Funding has increased, but performance has declined. And from my 
experience and what I'm seeing in schools, the decline will continue, regardless of your talk about funding. So I envisage that in 10 years' time, there'll be another expert panel sitting, talking about funding. Um, so why should I trust you? And the other reason I lack the trust is that you do not recognise my profession. And that is my feeling. You provide funding to doctors, scientists, engineers, but not teachers. Teachers are not encouraged to do study, to do research, to improve the system. And when you talk about the difference in Commonwealth and state, that divide would disappear because if you had teachers researching, finding best practice, teachers come from different states. The doctors are not divided by states, nor are the scientists. You divide us by states. And I think if you look at the best um, education systems, they are driven by the teacher profession. The teachers do the research. The how many experts have spent time in the classroom? You talk about retention and how that is a good thing. Can I ask you to, to get to a question? There's a, okay. These are powerful so, comments. <laughs> so I would like to see um, the government consider more support of teacher research to put money there, because I think that could lead to better practice in schools. Thank you for, for the question. Um, I'm, I'm not from the government, so I, I don't have that $40 billion to direct. Um, I would often start my uh, conversations with, with ministers talking, it's not about um, the, the teachers should trust the experts in the profession, uh, sorry, the experts in the, the bureaucrats and the politicians, the trust should go the other way. Um, I think was the was the point that teachers should be trusted, but also teachers, uh, um, <coughs> when they take on professional responsibility, where they know this, where their students are at, and are building the teaching from that, then the teachers are in by in by far the best position to actually take control of that work. And I, I think that some of the work that <coughs> Lisa was uh, talking about would reflect in there. Um, I think that. The current situation is a long way from what you're describing it needs to be um, in terms of the, that dynamic. So a, a brief uh, that's reflection from me. Um, other questions on how we change what is obviously a long felt tide flowing the wrong way, if I might <laughs> summarise very simply. Well, look, I, you know, everybody has responsibility to improve the system. Um, not every teacher is a fantastic teacher. You know, there is a lot of resistance to change in schools and in classrooms. And we still have teachers. I mean, I heard a teacher say that we weren't going to do something, one of the new requirements of the Board of Studies. Mm. Uh, uh, and, I mean, an accountant would never say, I'm not going to use the latest accounting standards. I'm going to use the 1974 ones that I was trained mm. under. Um, you know, it, it would never happen. So, um, you know, I, I, I sense some of, that, some of that preamble was directed to me. Um, you know, my job as, a, as, a, as an education minister was, and, and now in my new role, is to is particularly in that previous role, is a, is a facilitator. You know, a yes, to provide funds. You know, you, you need funds to do things, but then we did put in things in place. I think substantial things um, to enhance the status of the of the teaching profession, allow them to do those kinds of things that you're talking about in in, 
in your schools. Yes, allowing teachers to be uh, to do more research, I, I certainly agree. But that goes to the point again that you know nothing happens unless you have the trust and the support of of the teaching profession, and you know people in the teaching profession know what you know generally know what works in the classroom. So I, I agree with you that your sentiment at the end, um, but um, you know. Everybody has a role to play here, from ministers to secretaries to school teachers to, to the admin staff at the front of, and and parents. You know, the parents parents are often the ones we we leave out of this equation. And I think the, the from wherever it is, as a profession um, and a professional, there there should be I think always an expectation of how do we each improve, um, and improvement can't be done too. The profession it needs to be driven from within and that is a, a complex process um sir and then uh, who's next uh, i think over there thanks thanks very much um my i'm asking this question in the interest of trying to get your uh, to follow up on the maximization of the return on the money that we're spending already and this the question that previous question raised about non-improving standards and it goes to the a topic that hasn't been touched on at all tonight and that's the different interests of the commonwealth and the states in funding education where the commonwealth is making sure and historically and over recent decades increasingly so made sure that the non-government sector is at least fully resourced in terms of the school's resource standard Many of the state governments have been falling behind. I'm not, and I think Mr. Piccolini's term of office was a shining um, example to the contrary. Many of the states have been falling behind in their responsibilities of ensuring that funding goes to that part of this population, the school population, who would benefit most from increased funding, and that is the kids suffering the compound disadvantage that was identified before. So is there, do any of the members of the panel see any solution to this imbalance in funding where one, those kids who need it most are least appear, or in the recent years, have been least likely to get increased funding? Thanks. Well, I'm not going to talk about the funding debate because uh, I've got no remit at all to speak on it. No, 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 at least go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, how tricky is this issue? Um, when I looked at the data um, for the ACT when I came here today, what I found out was um, there's about 70,000 kids in the system um, and uh, there's about, I think, 1,160-odd kids in any one year. Oh, no, sorry, it's about 6,000 kids in any one year. 1,161 kids um, that are classed as vulnerable. Um, so 1,161 kids um, in any one year across 80-odd primary schools, and I worked that out to be around 14 kids per primary school. Now... Um, I imagine many of you probably dropped your children off at school today, or many of you are teachers, and many of you would have walked into the school gate, and, um, and I bet now you can personally um, see in your mind and name those one of those 14 children. 
Now, I think in part the, the discussion around funding has lost the sense of the names of the kids and actually the specificity of the kids that we know from the moment they walk into school are destined for failure. And it doesn't take necessarily more money for those kids. What it takes is a system to wrap around those kids, to identify them very, very early, and to continue to intervene. So this, again, was my point around the compound risk. So, you know, those 14 kids go from, you know, year one, year two, year three, they're handed from teacher to teacher to teacher. Often the only people that experience their trajectory in schooling are their parents and them themselves. And, and teachers year on year are playing catch up in terms of actually what does this child know? And so I'm, I'm, left, I'm less convinced about more money and the dollar value which will deliver outcomes. I actually think we need to think differently about the dollars that we're spending. And I know that probably hasn't quite, it's not answered your question, um, but I think we need to think differently about it. I, the Commonwealth doesn't need, to, doesn't need to name those kids, right? But my point is, you know, at new entrance, we know the names of those kids. Target them then. And, and don't leave them alone until you know that they have got past year nine, year 10, crunch point, and they're on a good trajectory. I think that's a really important point. One of the reasons why um, I've argued very publicly that Australia needs to end the funding wars so that we can move the discussion on. Um, but I've also argued that the only way that we can do that is if the funding system is good enough, right? We can't say it is what it is, let's just leave it there. Um, and there are schools that are, um, do have deep disadvantage. Um, they, the international research from PISA um, gets misquoted. Um, Sometimes Kevin Donnelly talks about it and says Australia is the most generous in the OECD um, to our most disadvantaged students. Um, he's misreading a sentence. We are the least generous in the OECD to our most disadvantaged students. More money makes a difference when it's to a, the most disadvantaged schools. We don't know if schools in Australia have too little, but David Gonski, when he did the panel, said he saw some that were. So still the biggest thing is going to be how can we raise the expectations and how across the board and how can we change things um, by, but um, in the end, uh, in terms of spending money, there are two parts to that debate. And we say it's about, as a nation, we say it's about how you spend the money. And of course it is. It's how you spend the money in anything in life. But step one in that is send it to the places where it's going to make the most difference in a needs-based fashion. Step two is that those places need to spend it as well as they can. So your Lisa's <coughs> point was to point two. Yours was to step one. There is this big divide. The Commonwealth has a, um, the previous system was allowing buck passing. The Commonwealth has put its a marker down and said, we are going to fund in an 80-20 fashion. 80% 80 of the, fu the funding that is needed, that varies by school, for non-gov schools and 20% for gov schools. One of the proudest things I've done in my professional career was to help encourage pass passage of the legislation that said that states would also need to come to the party. I proposed a way that might make that more affordable um, because uh, um, given that we have a mixed system, we're not going to be able to move past into this richer debate of how, do, how does the money get spent within every, uh, within every school. 
um, unless schools are funded broadly on their best estimate of need. It's been a messy, bloody process over many, many, many years. Um, but we do have the opportunity to settle in <coughs> and say we, do, we, we have a model that could be stable, but we can only get there if there are a number of other things that happen on the, uh, to, to flow that model through. And that does include more money, um, more money from the states. Um, and uh, Adrian has been leading that charge in New South Wales for a long time, um, and they're much closer. I'm from Victoria, and if there are any Victorians in the room, um, then Victorian Treasury is probably not sending me a Christmas card because uh, um, it needs to happen. Well, I think they might, because if education succeeds, then you will reduce the long-term forward fiscal liability um, for you know the rest of the rest of the government. So they might send you a Christmas card. It has end. to succeed in Victoria because it says it on the number plate. <laughs> We're the education state. Thank you for that. Um, I, I think. Sorry, over here, I'd said next. Um, uh, and quick questions and quick answers, and then we'll wrap up. Thank, thank you. Thank you to the full panel. I've heard quite a lot that makes me ask the question, and I'll ask for anyone to address it. What can you tell us tonight about partnerships between universities and bureaucrats? David referred to it in a general way when he spoke about people coming into the schools to work out what's best practice and working with the teachers themselves. Lisa spoke about it when she talked Can about I get you to just wrap up the, the supporting question? practice. Well, the question is, please talk about um, your thoughts on bureaucratic and university partnerships, because what John Hattie's doing is exactly what you're talking about. How are the universities being brought into this to Thank share you. the research? How can we tap into that expertise as well? Mm. So uh, I think that's a, a good question. And I think um, I should give credit to Peter for obviously what's been a very effective piece of advocacy by Grattan uh, around which is extracted from one of the major parties at the, at the federal level, a, a sizable commitment around a, a research institute uh, that is, will, I, I imagine, in its, um, <clears throat> in its in incarnation, if it ever comes about, uh, will bring together uh, uh, university academics and researchers and practitioners uh, to deliver findings and insights into what is best practice. Um, I do think uh, that that is a really important initiative. I, I think we do need the equivalent of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare who puts out every couple of years Australia's health, Australia's welfare. We need something like the Australian Institute of Education, which puts out every couple of years the report, Australia's Education, uh, which doesn't just deal with schools. It looks at early childhood education mm -hmm. uh, in, in particular, I think is an under, uh, under uh, sort of, uh, doesn't get its fair share of, it, uh, of attention. Um, as, as well as schooling, <clears throat> but also uh, school to work pathways, whether that be through the vocational education and training sector and universities. Uh, I think that would be, uh, if we could get something like that up and running, it would be great. Uh, it would be bring together academics and practitioners in a really unique way. And I think it would also be a good way of holding state jurisdictions accountable in the public domain uh, for their performance, which I think is a key role that the Commonwealth should play. 
So it's not about you lose the money. It's no, no, no. you have to stand up and explain. Yeah, you got to stand up and explain. Okay. Um, I'm going to give last question, and sorry, Dale, um, this is going to go to Alan. We started six minutes late. I will finish less than that late. Um, I'll keep it short. I'll give you the short version of the question. It's based on a comment from Lisa, but all of you might want to think about an answer. Um, Lisa, you were talking about under our federation system or our federated system that there's an advantage that you end up with bipartisan results because you negotiate and you have to negotiate to some conclusion across the states <coughs> and the Commonwealth and you start with a mix of uh, state governments with both from both sides of government. My concern is, and I think I see the evidence of it, that that might lead to a drive towards the lowest common denominator rather than best practice, that it lowers our <coughs> aspirations. And you might see that in terms of the testing patterns we do, the way we've let ATAR slip, or the fact that, yes, ATSL has recommendations for professional learning, but they're not compulsory. Yeah. And they're left to the states and they're not you know, they're not at the level that you would expect in other professions. Teachers are professionals. Um, engineers don't have a choice if they're a professional engineer about the kinds of qualification standards they have to meet. Neither do doctors, neither the vets, neither do pharmacists. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't have those higher aspirations across the system. Does it lead to a lowest common denominator? Can I say sometimes yes? Um, but the so the eight national frameworks that um, you're talking about, um, they have been uh, unevenly implemented. So, um, you know, across states and territories, we've got we've got excellent examples actually of where those particular frameworks have been fully adopted, fully implemented, and benefits are being realised. That is not happening happening across um, across not happening nationally. And so, uh, with that, what we also need to ensure is that there are some things we leave the benefits to realise their potential, implement those frameworks and actually enable the benefits to come to fruition. So don't turn it around really quickly. But I agree, uh, there are some instances where it is a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example, was the minimum entry standards to get into university. There was agreement at the Ministerial Council that there should be one, but that's it. When, when when the question was, I, I don't know if you'd started by then, Lisa. Yeah, just, I think it was my first meeting. <laughs> you know, when we'd set one, you know, bit of a blunt instrument in New South Wales, and we were trying to get some consensus on what it should be. What the agreement ended up being is that there should be one. Everyone agreed there should be one, but what is it? And still, still waiting for an answer to that. But I think there's also at the other end, there is uh, emerging consensus about minimum standards for exit, which is uh, arguably more important. Uh, and Lisa and I have been doing some you know, work on, on that as well. And we now have, uh, as a result of a, a Commonwealth-sponsored advisory group, uh, going back a few years, a, uh, an exit standard for, stu for students in terms of literacy and numeracy. You, uh, yeah. you have to pass a literacy and numeracy test at a certain level to be able to, uh, to practice as a teacher. Yeah, but I'm going to just pull, pull you, I'm just going to pick up a point there. I found as minister it was very hard to get a good idea of how difficult that test was out of ACR, I think, because it's proprietary, whatever. You know, as a member of that ministerial council, I found it very difficult. I don't even think we could get actually a sample test to have a look at to see whether it actually met a sufficiently high standard. So, you know, even in its application, some things tend to get watered down.
So yes. And sometimes you've got to start at a certain point before you ratchet it up. <laughs> ladies, ladies and gentlemen, you've been a very patient. We're here in Canberra. I'm saying uh, I'm going, going to hold for one quick thought. We're here in Canberra saying, what should the Commonwealth do? Um, we've been aiming to be constructive. One thought on how do we make 2018 the best year it can be? Lisa. Implement those national frameworks, actually. <laughs> Implement those national frameworks, make sure there's an honest broker in the system and hold people to account. David? Uh, I've already uh, swung in behind you on the National Research uh, or the Institute, but I, I would counsel the Commonwealth, um, uh, be brave in terms of setting overall vision and strategy, but leave it to the states to how to implement yeah. and hold them to account yes. for their outcomes. And I would say to the politicians is to set the standards high and defend them, and you can't be beaten. Um, you know, if, if universities want to go to war with you because you're setting the standards too high, you will have every single parent behind you. And I will leave with my last bit, which is a, that we have, we, we've talked quite a bit about the national data because that's something that we can do analysis on. But what helps teaching is having the information in your classroom about your own students, making it, having that be robust across different teachers, um, doing that is not an easy job. That requires time tools, training and teamwork. Um, and I think that we could, should have a national investment to provide support and tools for, to help teachers do that day-to-day -day job of understanding where each student is at so that they can help them take the next step. Because if we're going to lift at scale, in the end, it's going to be one student at a time across all four million of them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you to the panel and thank you to the library. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.